Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay, and we're in a series called A Man After God's Own Heart on the life of King David from the Old Testament. God called him a man after his own heart, but we see that he was far from perfect. What was it about this man that God liked so much? This series looks at David's environment, his experiences, and his responses to try to discover how we can live a life that brings delight to God's heart. Today we're going to talk about uh, continuing our series about King David, and we're going to look at the third message called The Runt of the Litter, and I brought a mascot to have with us today. <laughs> Our great pig here. I wonder if you've ever heard of the movie Babe. Today we want to talk about embracing your shortcomings. And we all have them, and we've all spent a lot of thought and energy on thinking about them. And are they correctable? Sometimes they are. Often they're not. And I was reminded of the movie Babe. There's a scene at the beginning of the movie where Babe has recently been born and is chosen. Let me read from the script. Whatever the reason of the thousands of animals in the piggery that day, only one was chosen. How's this one, Harry? Just right for the purpose. How much do I owe you? It's a runt, Harry. A worthless little runt. So today we want to talk about how do you handle sometimes in your life feeling like a runt, the runt of the litter. So if you'd open up to 1 Samuel 16, and we will pick up our story when Samuel goes to anoint David when he was just a lad. Saul had been king now for a good 20 years, maybe 25 years of his 40-year reign. And we'd seen last time we talked how uh, Saul had disobeyed God on several occasions and God finally had rejected him from being king and had said, I have chosen a man after my own heart, which is this title of our whole series, A Man After God's Own Heart. So let's pick up the story in 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. I'm struck by the phrase that God opens with, How long will you grieve over Saul? Samuel's the one that originally anointed Saul 20, 25 years before. There'd been high hopes. He was tall, dark, and handsome, and he, he got off to a good start. He had, frankly, a fair amount going for him, but it ended up turning out really badly. And Samuel was down about it, depressed about it. And I think they're probably, it's one of the things that happens in most Christians' lives if you live long enough and if you're really seeking to follow the Lord is that sooner or later some Christian leader is really going to disappoint you. Maybe they fall into sin, or maybe they're just, it's just a, a bad case of humanity striking. But whatever it is, uh, they make promises they don't keep. They maybe, in, in some instances, it's a, a sexual indiscretion, a financial indiscretion, uh, something with their, with their family, something in their relationship with you where they let you down. And it's, uh, some people get stuck there. And they never, they, they said, no, uh, the, the church has let, has let me down, and so I'm checking out. 
but uh, God says, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not over yet. How, how, long, how long are you going to get stuck at this point of grieving over Saul? So he says, fill your horn with oil to anoint a new king and go. And there are also times in our life where we, we sort of feel like everything's over. Either we fail or someone else has failed us. But God says it's not over yet. He says, the, the day has come now for you to fill your horn with oil once again and get going. I've got the next chapter in store for you. So let's look at the story. Samuel goes. At first he says, well, if, they, if Saul finds out I'm going to do this, he'll kill me. So God comes up with a, it's a very interesting little thing because he says, well, well, you could just tell him this. You know, it's almost like one of these sitcoms, you know, with I Love Lucy and, yeah, but what, what, what's Ricky going to say? Well, what you need to tell Ricky is this. And you think, God, you know, can't you just say, why don't you just trust me? You know, I'll take care of it. So anyway, I'm not sure totally what to make of that. What, what a lot of people say about this, though, is that in, in certain cases of when you're facing an enemy, when there's a physical danger, you don't have to be fully forthcoming with all the information and truth that will enable them to sin more effectively against you and against God. So, but that's not our topic today, so let's keep moving. So it goes down to Bethlehem. Everybody's thinking, oh, great, good grief, what have we done? You know, it's sort of like when the policeman comes, and he's just coming by to say hi or whatever, but you're, you think, am I speeding? Did I, is there something I, you know, what did I do wrong? And Samuel was kind of the top religious guy. So he was sort of like the pope or the bishop, or, and so he always sort of uh, do a double check, you know, is there anything wrong with me? Why is he coming? What's he got to say? But he says, no, no, just came for a barbecue. So he says, everybody get ready, and it'll be a sort of a sacrifice. In verse 6, well, in verse 5, he says, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. So when they entered... Samuel looks at Eliab, which is the oldest son of Jesse, as God has said, it's going to be one of Jesse's sons. And so Eliab comes in, and he happens to be probably tall and good-looking, and he reminded him kind of of Saul. I mean, he looked presidential. He says, now that, now that's, a, you know, and he's firstborn. That's always a plus, was always a plus back then. And so he says to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is, is before him. I mean, this, this must be the guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or the height of his statue. He must have said that because that's what he was looking at. I mean, what else can you look at? All you can look at is what you can see. He says, because I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. So God wasn't rejecting him because of how he looked, but, but what he could see inside this man. Then Jesse called Abinadab. And made him pass before Samuel. He says, nope, not that one either. Shammah, not that one either. And all three of these are named in the story of David and Goliath later on, by the way. Then he made the other four sons pass before Samuel. He says, nope, none of these. And no other sons were there. So Samuel says, don't you have any more? Uh, is that it? Are these all the children? And he says, well, there is one, the youngest, and he's out with the sheep. So Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. So he went and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and with a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, where it says David right there is the first time the name appears in Holy Scripture. 
So that's the first mention of the name of King David. And then he is talked about and mentioned and referred to all the way through the rest of the Bible, including the last chapter of Revelation. So we are really launching now into his, his life. We see seven no's. Not this one, not this one, not this one. Again, primogenitor or the, the importance of the firstborn was so significant back then. If, it wasn't, if you didn't pick the first, then it at least was the second. If it wasn't the second, it was at least the third. The royal line ended up of the 12 tribes of Israel ended up being who? Who was firstborn to, um, to Jacob? Reuben. Who was second? Simeon. Third, Levi. Fourth, Judah. And Judah was the one that ended up being the kingly line who King David was descended from, who the Messiah was descended from. And it was because Reuben got rejected for sleeping with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi got rejected for the murder, murders they committed when their sister was raped. So finally it fell to Judah. But you see, it went in order down to Judah. It didn't go down to the, all the way, all the, down to the 12th one. But here God goes to the extreme and takes the 8th one to choose him to be the next king. And he says, Arise, anoint him. This is the one, and the Spirit came on him mightily. Now this is the first mention of him, but we, we can tell as we look at David's life that this is not the beginning of his walk with God. It wasn't that he was a godless, sinful shepherd up until that point, and all of a sudden has a conversion experience here and says, Well, yes, I think I do believe in God. Uh, he had already been walking with God. Psalm 23 shows us what he'd been learning as a shepherd. And this is where his heart for God really was developed. Now, some of you still have never developed an intimacy with God. Uh, maybe you're coming because your spouse says, well, yeah, we need to, sweetie, we need to be in church. We've got kids now, you know, we don't want them to become drug addicts, so we, we need to go take them to church. And if we're taking them, we might as well go and set a good example. And so you've, you've taken that step, but you would not say that you've ever really had experienced an intimacy with God, a walk with God, a conversation with God, a sense that He's real, a sense that He's near. And I hope that's one of the things that maybe uh, some of these thoughts from Samuel and the life of David will trigger that thought, put that seed idea in your mind. Maybe I can draw near to God and get to know Him like David did. It's not too late. Just because you haven't found him yet and don't feel like he's found you yet, this still could be the beginning of a great friendship with a great God. Well, as we look at the story of David in this chapter, we're struck with the idea that he's sort of the runt of the litter. He's the youngest, and so that usually means that uh, everybody else, you know, when they put the big bowl of food on the table, the, the big ones get, get all the food, and the runt, you know, is always the one trying to See, is there anything left for me? And David was probably also little in his own eyes. It's hard to grow up as one of the younger ones in a big family. And, you know, you're always getting there late. Everybody else is, you know, they, they get to high school before you do. They, they're into sports before you do. They develop their gifts before you do. And, and you sometimes can feel like, well, will there be anything left for me by the time I, I get old enough? And even if... Uh, you finally do succeed in some areas. They've already gone on with their life. They're not even around to clap for you. You know, you are at least at their games. They're not going to be at your games, etc. 
And so David probably felt little in his own eyes and also in the eyes of others. Now let's look at some of the ways, as far as what we see in the scripture, how we would say that David felt little in certain aspects. Number one, when Samuel comes, I mean, this is like the President of the United States coming or, or the Secretary of State or the Pope or something like that. He comes to do, I mean, one of the most important things that has happened in Jesse's life and invites him to a sacrifice. He brings seven of his sons and he leaves David watching the sheep. I mean, now that, that communicates, doesn't it? Second, he was left to do the dirty work. He was the one doing the work while everybody else is at the barbecue. Third, his older brother Eliab accuses him. Let's look in uh, chapter 17, verse 28. You know, when David goes, you remember all this because you've been telling your kids this story for years, but his oldest brother was Eliab. In verse 28, it says, Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. Wow. Isn't it great when your older brother just thinks so highly of you and is so glad to see you? His older brother accuses him of irresponsibility. We gave you a job to do. You're not doing it. Uh, they didn't even give him a big responsibility. It's just a few sheep. It's not a whole herd or whatever sheep run in. Uh, he accuses him of insolence. He says, I know your insolence. He accuses him of wickedness. I said, good grief. And he said, you've basically just come down to see the battle. You're thrill-seeking. So how do you think that made David feel? I mean, this guy was probably 10, 12 years older than him. It was almost like a surrogate father figure. And to ha have him say that must have really hurt. Fourth, uh, Saul looks at David and doesn't say, yeah, man, now we got a winner. He says, are you kidding? Uh, he doesn't think that David should go fight Goliath. He finally accepts just because he's sort of desperate. Then he try David tries on Saul's armor. The implication is it's too big for him to wear which means that Saul's bigger than him, and he's little. We see David, when he goes to fight with Goliath, he, he fights with a sling at a distance rather than with tough guy weapons like a, you know, a short sword and a shield, and let's go mano a mano, you know. He says, no, I'll stand back about 20 yards and hit him, see if I can hit him with a rock, you know. <laughs> and finally, when Goliath sees him, he doesn't say, okay, now let's go for it. He says, you must be kidding. This, is, this guy is a shrimp. So all of these different things, I'm sure, contributed to David feeling little. Now, I want, to, I want us to talk in small groups for a minute just about uh, what are the pros and cons of being the low man on the totem pole. It can come up in different ways. It can come up in sports. It can come up in your family, in your birth order. It can come up in your, in your finances as far as where you fall in terms of, of income, where your house is located, uh, how strong you are, how... How beautiful or handsome you think you are, how tall you are, etc. There are a lot of different ways it could come out. But I want you to talk for a minute just about the pros and cons of being uh, in whatever scale on the low side of the scale, or what they say, low man on the totem pole. So take a minute, turn with two or three people, and talk about what are the, what are the advantages and disadvantages of being uh, little. All right, well, good. That gets our thinking going. Uh, I wonder how you see yourself today. I wonder if you see yourself is as a, a great, a handsome, or beautiful winner that pretty much everything goes your way and uh, that your life has turned out just like you had hoped and dreamed. Or if, on the other hand, you are pretty aware of some of your limitations, a lot of situations you felt like uh, the underdog or the lesser. I remember my basketball career. I won't get into all the gory details, but 
I was tall at least, but apparently I was uh, so un uncoordinated and stupid on the court that they didn't even let me have a uniform. Uh, there was one day in the whole season, I would sort of scrimmage, I would sort of bounce the ball on the side while the team was practicing and, and shoot and, and, and really try to get good. And one day in study hall, they came and said, Enough, so many people are sick, you get a uniform to dress up for the game today. It's so great. So I watched the whole game. The third quarter, we were losing so bad, they put me in. And uh, they said, go in for Ricky. And I said, which one's Ricky? And uh, <laughs> uh, they put me in. I ran up the court one time, back down the court one time. I'm not sure what I did wrong. I don't think I even touched the ball. They pulled me out, and that was the, my whole basketball career in high school. So now, you see, there are a lot of things that you really are at the top of the totem pole. And there are other things you're at the bottom. But what affects you more? The things where you feel weak in and little in. See, I was number two or number three on the tennis team, but what do I remember? I remember my basketball career. And Satan wants you to hate yourself. And he wants you to hate the way you're made. And if he can get you to do this, you'll be open to all kind of self-destructive behaviors. Now, you have a lot going for you, but you tend to focus on what's missing and what's deficient. So we want to talk a little bit about how God used David's littleness to make him great. It wasn't in spite of his littleness, that that was one of the main things that God used. We also need to recognize that just because you are little, or, you know, using this as an, in a metaphorical way, it doesn't mean that things will automatically turn out for good. We're not saying that, oh, if you're little, then you've got it made. Not necessarily. Saul also had his own littleness issues. Uh, we see that Samuel, 1 Samuel 9, 21, he was from a small tribe and family. When Samuel goes to anoint him, he says, oh, it can't be me. You know, I'm, I'm a nobody. We also see when he is chosen by, when they cast the lots, they can't find him. He's hiding in the baggage. So he, he's not thinking, oh, yes, they finally found me, and I'm the man for the job. He says, I don't know if I'm up to this. And then in 1 Samuel 15, 17, he says, Samuel says to him, Is it not true that though you were little in your own eyes, you were little in your own eyes, you were made head over the tribes of Israel? So it, Saul also had his own littleness issues. But instead of those things making him great for God, Saul turned into a devil, a murderous maniac, a depressed and haunted man. So what can you do? We, uh, most people deal with this one way or another. And we're going to talk today about how to let your littleness have a good effect on you, producing humility and surrender and devotion, instead of having a bad effect on you like it had on Saul. So a couple of suggestions that summarize a lot of biblical principles. The first is turn more to God than to people for your hope and comfort. Saul only looked at things horizontally. He says, you know, when, when he figured out David was probably going to be his replacement, what did he do? Did he pray about that? Did he talk to God? No, he grabs a spear and tries to kill David, uh, finish off the competition. It's the depth and quality of your walk with God that keeps your self-loathing at bay. Turn more to God than to people for your hope and comfort. It's that depth of your walk with him. Second, stop viewing your littleness issues as a bad thing. You think, oh, if it just wasn't for this, or if I was just a little taller, if I was just a little prettier or more handsome, if I just could make some more money, if I just had a, a better boss. And some of those things could change, but a lot of times they change for the worse, not for the better. But to stop viewing your littleness issues as necessarily a bad thing. In fact, possibly the key to your greatness has more to do with God using 
your shortcomings than your strengths. These are the limits that God in his wisdom has chosen to allow in your life for his purposes. Now again, you can't, uh, you always think, well, what if, and if things had just been different, well, you, you can't know all the ramifications of what if things had been different. You can trust that God knew all of those things. And in his great love for you, he says, yeah, I've looked at all of the possibilities. He says, this is what I'm choosing for you. And I want you to believe that I, I love you. And I'm not messing up your life. Uh, I'm really trying to, if you'll, if you'll trust me, I'll turn it into what seems like lead. I'll turn it into gold. And third, realize that God has a special place in his heart for the little ones. He's drawn to those who are little and weak and know it and run to him for refuge. So when you're feeling weak and you're tempted to loathe yourself in that area, say, well, Lord, you are particularly drawn to the weak. You're not like the coach who's only looking for the strong and fast and smart players. Uh, you're the kind of coach that particularly notices the doofus who really shouldn't probably even be going out for this sport and brings out the best in that one and particularly is fond of them. So let's talk a little bit about you. Maybe you feel uh, little in some areas. You probably do. It could be that you've long felt that your sister is prettier, that your friend is smarter. Maybe you didn't do so well in sports. Maybe you don't make as much money as some of the other people. Maybe your house you don't feel like is very nice and you keep, it keeps bothering you. Maybe your children aren't behaving very well or as well as uh, some other people's children. Maybe your dad or mom is an alcoholic. Maybe your brother has always looked down on you. Maybe you feel little, insignificant, overlooked, underappreciated. Maybe you feel unattractive, overweight, short, dumb, or unhandy. Uh, we all deal with, with these feelings of feeling little. Have you come to where you can thank God for what he has allowed that has kept you from excelling as much as you would like? Athletically? Socially, academically, physically, vocationally. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to overcome our weaknesses, make the best of our handicaps, develop our gifts. Sometimes you, can, you have a weakness in some area and you can compensate in other ways. We're not talking about a passive approach to it of case okay, sarah, sarah, that's just the way it is. I mean, there are a lot of things that you can do, but I'm talking more about the things you really can't change. You can't change your birth order. Uh, you can't really change, as though, as though, although many people try, uh, certain aspects of your of your physical makeup and with age it just gets worse so you know you can keep trying but it's sort of like the Titanic you know it's going down <laughs> but if you come to where you can actually look at the very things that you had so much wished weren't that way and say Lord I want to thank you for that instead of beating myself against it or beating myself up because of it I want to take a different look at it not focus so much on being a winner because that's why usually you want one of those things to change. You want to be a winner. You want to be out on top. You want to have the gold, uh, not, not the bronze. Or you'd be happy for the bronze, frankly, in a lot of these things. It's not as though you feel like I've got to be number one, but I'd rather not be last in this area. But your littleness may end up being your greatest asset. And to God, you might not be the runt of the litter at all, like with David. I mean, he looked to everybody else like he was little, but he was God's giant. Goliath wasn't the giant. David was the giant in God's sight, and that's the only one that really matters. 
So if you're feeling little today, start thanking God specifically for the limits he's allowed and ask him to use those things to drive you closer to him and to work wonderful things in your character. Now, some people, there's always in a group, there's some people maybe that don't feel little. I mean, you have just had a charmed life, and uh, you look the way you want to look. You have what you want to have. Things have always gone your way. You were the class president. You were the, maybe the head of the cheerleading squad. You were the football quarterback. You've gone into the best profession, make the most money, have the nicest house, drive the nicest car, have the best kids. But even if that's your case, I would just want to tell you it's just a matter of time. Old age and sickness bring all of us up against limitations and humiliations that are inescapable. I mean, someday you're going to be in that hospital room with that funny gown on the slit down the back. It doesn't matter how good you could throw the football or do the cheer at, in high school. You're going to go through your own time of humiliation and feeling little and uh, stupid. And many people get horribly depressed at that time of their lives, particularly the ones that have been the, the winners, the, the big ones. And old age is already starting to affect every, every one of us. We, we notice things, except maybe Caroline. She snuck in the class today, but uh, you'll be there. Just a matter of time. And to already be developing these thoughts of how even those things that nobody want, wishes for, nobody wants, but that do finally overtake you, to trust that in this principle of how God can use littleness to make you great. Say, Lord, I'm going to trust you also uh, in times of failing health and failing eyesight and everything else. That you're going to use these limitations and these things that make me feel little and tempt me to despise myself. Says, Lord, I'm going to trust that just in the same way you worked in David's life to Take his littleness to make him great, that you're going to do great things in my life, through my life, using the very things that I really don't like, but you have allowed. A third point is you may be dealing with an addiction. You may be dealing with an addiction. So many addictions get their start in littleness issues, where you're feeling inadequate, you're unhappy with yourself, and you try to find ways to feel better. Now, I'm not going to try and give any quick ways to deal with addictions because I don't, I'm afraid I haven't found any yet. If you find some, you'll make a lot of money. But, uh, but it often helps, I think, to realize that the addiction is almost never the root problem. It's not as though somebody says, hey, I think I want to get addicted to cigarettes. I think I would like to be a Coke addict. You know, they don't, they don't start there. They start, it starts more with uh, uh, wanting to be part of the gang because they feel like, well, if I don't do that, then I'll, they'll, they'll reject me or I don't like how I look or, or whatever it, it might be. But that is one of the ways that Satan gets his hook in to draw a person into it. And an eating addiction, a medication addiction, a hallucinogenic addiction, whatever it might be. And to realize that it's my littleness issues that is... Not dealing with that correctly is one of the things that can get me into trouble. And it's also one of the things that probably will need to be dealt with if you really want to be free of that addiction. Because what happens with some people is they'll deal with one addiction and fall into another one. Because the, the addiction wasn't really the problem. It was a symptom of something deeper, of self-hatred because of a littleness issue. And fourth, many of you here have children. And these truths are also for your children. You know, they're all dealing with this. It starts really young, doesn't it? 
the issues of shame, the issues of inadequacy. They see others are really good and get chosen on the, on the soccer team or whatever it is. They see uh, some of the girls, everybody flocks around them and, and they don't flock around your girl or it, whatever it is. It, our children also are dealing with this. And to realize that Satan is also looking, he's hunting for them and wanting to get them to feel so bad about themselves that they will consider doing things that will be self-destructive, ultimately. You need to help equip them to deal with those inner struggles. Because Satan's going to tempt them to handle it in wrong ways. It's not enough. I mean, what some people do is they just tell their kids over and over again, you're great, you're beautiful, you're wonderful. But the world tells them the truth. And there are more of them than there are of you. And by about age 12, they've decided, my parents mean well. They're just trying to be encouraging. But everybody else tells me the awful truth, that I'm, I'm too ugly, too short, too tall, too fat, too thin, too weak, too whatever, and beat them up with ridicule and rejection. So what can you do with your children? It's, it's, you need to initiate with this. You can tell them about the life of David and some of the things we're learning here. You can also talk to them about how you dealt with it in your own life. Uh, what, were, what were your middle school years like? And tell them some of the pain and how you felt about that. And then, then get into the scripture and say, how does God feel about the little one? Is God looking for the stars? Is he looking for the, for the winners? Or is he looking for the least, the little, the last, and the lost, and that very thing that you don't like about yourself and you think, well, my life is totally ruined because of this. He says, no. The way God is, is he's allowed that because he wants to do something great in your life if you'll learn to trust him. The bottom line is learning how to let God make you truly great through the very things that you feel are your greatest liabilities. I remember when God himself came to earth, he didn't come as the captain of the football team. He didn't come as the chief priest's son. He didn't come as one of the aristocrats. He didn't come into a family that had a lot of money. He wasn't even born in a big city. He was born in a barn in a rural town. On top of that, he was Galilean, and even the Jews looked down on the Galileans. He didn't come. He could have come any way he wanted to. Now, if somebody says, you can fly anywhere you want to on the plane, where do you want to fly? Let's face it. We like first class. And we can't afford it. We're never going to do it. But if you ever get bumped up, you're happy to be there, you know? You got the leg room, you got the, all the different meals and drinks and pillows and everything. Jesus didn't come first class. He chose to be little and despised and become the greatest man that's ever lived. God's promise in Isaiah 60, 22, the smallest one will become a clan and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. I'm hoping today that you can begin to get a sense of the importance of this particular principle of how God uses littleness. That littleness isn't just something that you bear with and put up with and regret, but, you know, what can you do about it? There's something more there that God's doing. And if you get it, it can open up a whole new level of development in your Christian life. So let's go back to our movie. At the very end of the movie, the very last thing that the guy says is, that'll do, pig. 
And the narrator picks up, the pig and the farmer regarded each other. And for a fleeting moment, something passed between them. A faint sense of a common destiny. I want to change the figure a little bit. That'll do, and you put in your name. That'll do, Mary. That'll do, John. The weak little believer and the God of the universe regarded each other. And for a fleeting moment, something passed between them. A faint sense of common destiny. Will you let God make you great? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the life of David. I think we're going to realize we can relate to him even more than we thought we could. And as he felt little and despised, rejected by his brothers, slighted by his father, ridiculed by his enemy Goliath, and even looked down on by the king, he could have taken that as the measure of his true worth. But David had learned to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He'd learned to let God make him great. And you have been talking about him ever since. Lord, I pray for our own lives, for the lives of our children, that you would stretch out your hand to embed this truth in our hearts, that we wouldn't run from and spend our life regretting our littleness, but realize that maybe the very things that we have hated and that we felt limited us could be the key to a new level of spiritual greatness, at least in your eyes, Lord. We pray, Lord, that these thoughts would continue to develop and we could pass that on to another generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.